0: Deadline, White House, is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: Hi there, everyone. It's four o'clock in New York. Last night, we witnessed the rise of one political candidate who encapsulates the Republican Party's current incarnation, namely in its total capitulation and metamorphosis into Donald Trump sycophants, as well as its future. For, as a vehicle for fundamentally anti-Democratic impulses. A man named J.D. Vance won the Ohio Senate Republican primary. J.D. Vance beat out a field that included another pro-Trump politician, as well as a candidate who earned the wrath of the disgraced ex-president by refusing to parrot his lies about the 2020 election result. Now, this is really important. Back in 2016, J.D. Vance... He rose to fame in some corners after writing a best-selling memoir called Hillbilly Elegy, told a friend that he feared Donald Trump was, quote, America's Hitler. J.D. Vance called Donald Trump, quote, cultural heroine in the pages of The Atlantic. And J.D. Vance told a Slate reporter that Donald Trump was, quote, leading the white working class to a very dark place. Again, those are direct quotes from a man named J.D. Vance. Now, J.D. Vance is now, after last night, the Republican candidate for Senate in Ohio, thanks almost entirely to an endorsement from the ex-president that propelled him from also ran third place in some polls to the top of a very crowded field. As the bulwark Sarah Longwell puts it in today's New York Times, the Ohio, Ohio primary shows that, quote, at this time, there's no moving past Trump. He's remade the Republican Party in his image, and many Republican voters now crave his particular brand of combative politics, described again by J.D. Vance as, quote, cultural heroine by, quote, America's Hitler. But that particular brand of combative politics, fueled by disinformation and paranoia, and now best embodied by one J.D. Vance, has nothing but contempt for our democracy, Vance has peddled the big lie. Vance has referred to the January 6th Select Committee as, quote, the real assault on democracy. And in a recent profile in Vanity Fair, J.D. Vance advocated for a total purge of the U.S. government, saying this, quote, I think Trump's going to run again in 24. I think that what Trump should do, if I was giving him one piece of advice, fire every single mid-level bureaucrat, every." civil servant in the administrative state, and replace them with our people. J.D. Vance went on Steve Bannon's podcast just before Russia invaded Ukraine, sparking one of the, or yeah, Russia's invasion of Ukraine sparked one of the biggest challenges to the post-Cold War world order. And J.D. Vance said this about it, quote, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. The only thing stopping J.D. Vance and all the candidates like him across this country who were hoping to rise to power and potentially help pave the way for Donald Trump to return to the White House one way or another. Right. The Democratic Party and its voters, many of whom are now energized, traumatized and enraged by the possibility of the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court ending the constitutional right to abortion access in America. Once again, from Sarah Longwell in The Times, whether Trump's handpicked candidates win or not, the Republican feel that will emerge from these primary battles will be overwhelmingly Trumpy. If Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and a handful of the elected officials who voted to impeach Trump survive their primaries, it'll be good for democracy. But it will not be sufficient to blunt Trump's wholesale takeover of the party. For that to happen, scores of candidates endorsed by Trump who win their primaries, will need to lose in the general election. Only sustained defeat delivered by high Democratic turnout and right-leaning college-educated suburban voters refusing to support these Trumpy candidates will change the current trajectory of the Republican Party. The clash in our country between democracy and autocratic impulses in the 2022 midterm elections is where we start today. Michelle Cinders here, NBC News Washington correspondent, moderator of Washington Week on PBS. She joins us live today from Shreveport, Louisiana, where she is covering the impact of the leaked document that we learned about the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe. Also, Miles Taylor's here, former chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security, now the executive director of the Renew America movement. Cecile Richards is here. She's the former president of Planned Parenthood, now co-chair of American Bridge. And with us on set for the hour, Jeremy Bash is here, former chief of staff for the CIA and Department of Defense. Jeremy now, an MSNBC national security analyst. Let me start with the reporting, Yamish. We spoke uh, 24 hours ago, almost exactly. Tell me, you're in a new spot, you're in Freeport now. Tell me the, the reaction and what you're hearing from voters today.
2: Well, I'm in Shreveport, Louisiana at Hope Medical Group for Women. This is one of three abortion clinics here in Louisiana. I spoke to the administrator who really echoed what I heard from the director of the only abortion clinic in in Mississippi um, yesterday. And they are both essentially saying that this is devastating for women, this idea that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. The administrator told me that at this clinic, um, where they would be shut down, by the way, if Roe v. Wade was overturned because they're one of 13 states here in Louisiana that has triggered laws. At this clinic, they are inundated with women who are trying to get abortions, who are getting abortions, um, especially women coming from Texas, because that state last year passed an abortion ban after six weeks of pregnancy. Um, The administrator told me that they have up to three Hundred women on the waiting list. And I should tell you, while we're talking, of course, about politics, and that's an incredibly important part of this, when I talk to the people here on the ground, they're not looking to Washington for solutions, frankly. Um, the, the director yesterday in Mississippi told me that she has zero faith, no hope, that Congress will be at all pass any sort of legislation that will help bring back abortion rights in this country once they are gone. And here, the, the woman here, the administrator, Kathleen Pittman, she told me she has little faith that Congress will be able to do something. I should also note, here in Louisiana, because politics, of course, is local. It's the Democrats, Nicole, in this state that passed the abortion ban here that is going to make it hard and really impossible for a woman to get an abortion after Roe is overturned, if it is, of course, overturned. So really, the politics are are very much an, an issue here. But there are so many women that are, frankly, exhausted, that are, frankly, scared, because once these—if Roe is overturned and these abortion clinics go away, the one in Mississippi, the one here in Louisiana, some women will have to drive up to 12 hours to go to an abortion clinic. Think about the fact that if you're in Houston, you might have to go all the way to Colorado. If you're in Shreveport, you might have to go to Illinois. Those are 12-, 11-, nine-hour drives. And the women here are overwhelmingly poor. They're overwhelmingly women of color. So while they're, of course, listening to what the president and Democrats are saying, they're also just trying to figure out how to survive in the midst of this sheet, this really sea change of legislation.
1: I mean, Cecile, this reality is something that we've tried to always come back to in our conversations since the Texas near total ban was um, not only passed, but but um, held up. Um, and it, it, I think Yamisha's reporting yesterday and today that the the, the the two women she's interviewed who run abortion clinics are not looking to Washington is an interesting backdrop when you look at Democratic candidates like Tim Ryan. I want to show you what he said on Morning Joe this morning about his commitment to turning that around, to to speaking to voters, at least in Ohio, about what he will do to protect reproductive rights.
0: So basically,
3: J.D. Vance and these other folks are telling a mom or a, a young woman that if she gets raped or if there's incest, that the state, the government, is going to make you have – bring
4: that uh, uh, pregnancy to term. That's insane uh, in a free society, in a a country that's been built on the the value of freedom. So when you look, again, back to the the Matt Dolan uh, candidacy in the Republican
3: primary, I think that affected his numbers uh, because he primarily won in Cleveland and Columbus and a lot of those suburban areas. Because I think those voters find that position uh, repugnant. And and
4: those are going to be Tim Ryan voters.
1: So, Cecile, Tim Ryan um, is a Democratic nominee there in that race. He now faces J.D. Vance. And what he seems to be seizing on is the most extreme element of, of many of these state bans that most of us, I guess, fear will go into effect once Roe is overturned, and they are extreme enough to, in most instances, exclude any exceptions in the case of rape and incest. Where, where is your head today on Tim Ryan's message in, in terms of its ability to turn around what Yamiche is reporting, that on the ground people are no longer looking to Washington?
5: Well, I think actually what Tim said is is right spot on. And it in some ways it does complement what Yamiche is saying, which is I, most people have no idea what's happening. Right. This is all a, a lot of us, of course, have been thinking about this ever since the Texas abortion ban. We've been talking about it. You've been covering it on your story. But a lot of people in our own polling have showed that. People just thought this is never going to happen. They are never going to overturn Roe versus Wade. That is like a, that's just, it's too far out. And honestly, I have to say, Nicole, even as someone who intellectually thought that this was possible, I too was just shocked to read this, the leaked opinion and the disregard for women, uh, for the people that, that Tim is talking about. And I think that's why you're seeing now this outpouring of concern because people are finally, realizing this sort of republican party agenda which has been has been you know going on for many many years they now are in position to actually make it reality and as you said we're not talking about you know restrictions on abortion we are talking about ending safe and legal abortion completely like they just did you know in Texas Oklahoma just today you can imagine The chaos, the fear, the anxiety of the kinds of patients that Yamiche is talking about. So many women were driving from Texas to Oklahoma for abortion care. Now they're not going to be able to go there. They won't be able to go to Mississippi, Louisiana. It is is going to cause a public health care catastrophe in this country. And I do believe it is finally sinking in with people who perhaps have not been paying attention that this threat to a right that we've had for nearly 50 years in this country is very, very real. And it's strictly due to politics.
1: You know, Cecile, there's a piece um, that Brett Stevens, a a conservative, has authored that describes the Supreme Court's draft opinion as the radical choice, that abandoning precedent is not conservative, that these, as you're describing, these these drastic and dramatic overnight shifts in, in policy and in, in the status quo is not conservative at all. And, and I wonder, Cecile, as you look at sort of the reaction almost 48 hours later, if you've sort of seized on what the rallying cry should be heading into the midterms.
5: Well, first of all, I think it's um, I think what's going to happen that is Actually, for help, to help people understand this issue is, women are going to start being harmed, and those stories are going to come out, and doctors are going to start getting put in jail. I mean, if if Roe versus Wade passes in Texas, doctors can be, uh, you know, criminally charged, and. They can actually be put into jail for life. that is That is how extreme these bills are. I don't think the American people have even imagined that this is what could happen. And unfortunately, this all does come down to politics. And I think you and I've talked about many times the people that are motivated you know are passing these bills and saying all these wild, outlandish things. They don't really care about women or babies or children. They are simply doing it for political purposes, just as your example in Ohio has illustrated. And I don't even think they realize the impact this is going to have on particularly on voters who have not been paying attention. And we're now looking up and saying the Republican Party has made abortion completely illegal. Again, I mean, Ohio's a good example. Texas if Roe is overturned, the most extreme ban will go into effect. It means you can't get an abortion if you've been raped, if you've been the victim of incest, if you um, you have a, a, a fetus with uh, abnormalities that are incompatible with life. Nothing. And that is going to affect millions and millions of people in this country. I think it is an issue we have seen with swing voters, with independent voters, women and men. They think this is where the Republican Party has completely lost the plot. They have, you know, this, their obsession with ending abortion. And of course, that's not going to be the end. They will soon go after birth control, emergency contraception, go down the list. This is They are completely out of step with the American people.
1: Yeah. And I mean, Miles, this is where the extremism of this current incarnation of the GOP syncs up with the extremism in so many other areas. And I, I just want to, you know, Cecile said it all comes down to politics. When Tim Ryan cites the, the counties where the less Trumpy candidate struggled, it's, it's the voters Cecile's talking about. He talks about voters um, in Cleveland and, and Columbus. And I wonder where you put sort of the the, the the sort of wrapping their arms around all things extreme, whether it's on overturning row, I think 63% of Americans don't think it should be illegal, whether it's eliminating these exceptions for rape and incest and life of the mother, I think you get up from 63 to about 75 to 85 percent of Americans think that those exceptions should remain in law. The Republicans are, are, are moving far away from those mainstream positions.
2: They
3: are, Nicole, but here's what's really striking to me, and I guess I'll do the bad news first and then the good news. The bad news is despite that, despite the Republican Party being a small tent party, the bad guys are winning. The anti-democratic forces in the Republican Party appear to be ascendant. They're winning these primaries. And that's the one place where I disagree with Sarah Longwell, as I agree with much of what she said in her op-ed in the New York Times that you led with. But the notion that if these people lose in the general election and, and it's over and the GOP will reform, I think is wrong because they didn't learn the lesson the first time. Donald Trump lost them the White House, lost them the House of Representatives, lost them the Senate. And guess what? Republicans didn't get the message. Instead, they've doubled down and tripled down on the pro-Trumpy sort of intimidation message that the GOP is carrying. That's worrying to me. I think even if these candidates like J.D. Vance lose in the general, I still think they're going to be going back to the well of Trumpism. That's the bad news, is that people who cheered on the insurrection are the types of folks who are now trying to go get elected to Congress. The good news, though, as you know, is that the tide has really turned the pro-democracy side and we've seen and i think we're likely to see the enthusiasm gap of you know in these midterms shrink and that was one of the things that our organization renew america movement was worried about going into the midterms is that democrats really weren't excited to go vote republicans were fired up and it looked like a lot of pro-trump figures were going to win because of that now as you note, that enthusiasm gap is closing it's going to be a much closer midterm election period and one other thing that people aren't talking about nicole is there are actually a lot of Republicans who don't associate with the pro-Trump side that are winnable in these elections. And I'll give you an example. In Arizona, a key battleground, 20 percent of Republicans say they're open to voting for the Democrat Mark Kelly or they're undecided. That's one in five. That's a huge pickup opportunity for the other side. So we see that in other states as well.
1: Yeah. And I mean, public opinion on Ukraine is so lopsided. I think 96 percent of all respondents, even in some Fox News polls, think Trump, think Putin is um, sorry, not sorry. Think Putin is a bad actor. Um, yet this is J.D. Vance, um, Jeremy, on Ukraine with his media bestie, Tucker Carlson.
4: The same people who have obsessed over Ukraine and Russia over the last two weeks are the same people who tried to take down a democratically elected president, Donald Trump, with their obsession over Russia. When you see our country obsessing, right, every cable news channel, uh, every single Democratic politician, even, frankly, a lot of garbage Republicans, obsessed with Ukraine all the time, but completely ignoring the conditions of their own country, I think a lot of us are looking around and saying, well, what about our sovereignty? They are accomplishing the invasion of the country that they that they should love, but of course they don't. And you have to ask yourself who's benefiting from this and who's getting rich from it. And there's two big answers. First of all, Chamber of Commerce style Republicans and Democrats who love the cheap labor, who love the fact that these immigrants are displacing America's workers, but also Democrat politicians who have decided that they can't win re-election in 2022 unless they bring in a large number of new voters to replace the voters that are already here.
1: That has its roots in the white supremacist handbook of the replacement theory, and it's coming out of the mouth of J.D. Vance to a very receptive audience of one Tucker Carlson.
6: Yeah, Nicole. What I'd add is that here we have a, a major candidate for office in the United States of America parroting Kremlin talking points. These are exactly the points that Putin is trying to advance on the world stage. He's trying to sap the will of the West, trying to undermine the will of the United States. When in fact there is a broad bipartisan, nonpartisan consensus yeah. that what we should be doing is supporting our allies in Europe, strengthening the transatlantic security architecture, and standing up for a free. An independent Ukraine. That's not terribly controversial in Washington. And here we have a major candidate for office basically way outside the mainstream on that issue.
1: And calling the Republican, I mean, Mitch McConnell is, is in that group, but he's, for them, they are garbage Republicans obsessed with Ukraine. I mean, the, the polls are so lopsided on this. Where's the incentive structure outside of Moscow?
6: It's hard to find. And of course, this candidate who won the primary last night just a few uh, months ago was decrying what Donald Trump stood for in the Republican Party. He himself was a never Trumper. And of course, he had to answer for it. So consistency has, you know, plays no role. There's no value proposition in that. And so I think this is very, a very dangerous signal, because what it says is that a major party is going to begin to veer off in a pro-Russia, pro-Kremlin direction. And that's not only bad for that party. I actually think it's bad for the United States. Yeah.
1: I mean, look, Yamiche, you've done, you know, the tip of the spear journalism on on the Trump presidency and on this moment. And I think together we've covered January sixth, and, and I think it's it's Liz Cheney who first started talking about their work mattering not so much as a look over the shoulder at January 6, 2020, but a look ahead to 2024. And I wonder your thoughts as you see um it's not a story about Trump's muscle in the Republican Party. I, I don't know any corner in which that's in dispute. It's a story about anti-democratic candidates of any party being ascendant and ending up as general election candidates for a party that's now stacking election offices and secretary of state offices with people who don't believe in democracy either.
2: Absolutely. When you think when I talk to officials, um, White House officials, Democratic officials, they really point to the fact that January 6th, it wasn't the end of the Trump presidency. In fact, it was really sort of the beginning of this new phase of American democracy, where this experiment that we've all enjoyed and are all living through, that it's most at risk. And when you talk to immigrants and people who are really studied um, democracies that have collapsed, they really say that this is how they collapse. They collapse by by sort of a, a little idea that maybe the elections were rigged to a bigger and bigger idea with more and more people backing the idea um, that that only the people who they support um, can be the ones that are in power. So you think about sort of January 6th and what President Trump was saying um, and about the fact that he thought he won the election. And of course, we know that that wasn't true. But then you fast forward and you have a whole slate of GOP uh, candidates who are now uncomfortable saying that Joe Biden was elected president fairly. That is really sort of something that gets to the heart of of sort of the danger here. When you talk to Democrats, I will also say, um, I'm really struck at the, about the idea that even as people kind of debate what the power is of Trump in the Republican party, that as you said, everyone is worshiping, everyone who wants to get elected, at least are worshiping at the altar of Donald Trump and worshiping there means that you have to question the integrity of the entire electoral system, questioning, um, the very foundations of American democracy, the very reason why people come and move to this country. And all of that is happening. I have to say, while you're seeing women, I will go back to the story that I'm covering today. You see women and Americans saying, once you start, sort of chipping away at American democracy, you also start chipping away at rights. I'm thinking about one uh, woman that I talked to who told me that it's really, really hard to get a right back when it's gone. And I would also say that it's really, really hard to get respect back for the elections and the institutions if they're taken away.
1: I mean, that's exactly right. And and I guess, Jeremy, the the J.D. Vance story is not a story about J.D. Vance. It's a story about this toxic axis of Donald Trump Tucker Carlson, and Vladimir Putin, and it represents the mainstream of the Republican Party today.
6: Well, actually, I'm not sure it represents the mainstream. I think— Of the elected officials? I think it represents a— ascendant. I like the way Miles put it, an ascendant view inside the party. And I think the concern is that there's a stranglehold by that faction on the party. But I actually think
1: if they're a faction, tell me who's who's, who's the rest of them.
6: Well, but well, I actually think that if you went to Senate Republicans and even the majority of House Republicans, they would stand with NATO. They would stand with uh, our, bits, our position, 63, yeah, right, yeah, our right, position right. with respect to Ukraine. So I, I think at this hour, Nicole, we have a bipartisan consensus to support Ukraine. But I do think it's fragile. And I think it's mm. it's curious and very disturbing that someone can win a primary for a major office on the express proposition that January 6th was a big lie. And that Vladimir Putin's talking points should be advanced in the halls of the United States Senate. I think that's entirely incompatible, not just with what that party has stood for for many generations, but what the United States must do, given the rise of autocracy.
1: Yeah, I guess, Miles, I'll give you the last word here. I mean, that's the struggle, right? And, and you've joined the fight after serving Donald Trump uh, over the questions of protecting democracy. How, how's it going inside the Republican Party? You don't see a lot of the good guys winning.
3: Yeah, it's not going well. Um, look, I'm a Jeremy knows I'm a huge fan of his, um, but I, I take a dimmer view of what's happening inside the Republican Party. I, I think it's been a full Trump takeover. And the people that Jeremy references will tell both him and I in private that they stand on the side of the good guys. But when they're called to account publicly or when they have to go take a vote or when they're running an election, They've been making the wrong decision. They've been making the anti-democratic decision. And they don't believe you, Nicole. They don't believe Jerry. They don't believe anyone that's on this screen right now. But, you know, I'm a garbage Republican, apparently, and, and Jeremy <laughs> to them is a long-lost Democrat. But do they believe the numbers? And I want to leave you with one number. And we've talked about this before. But a new poll came out a few weeks ago that said one in ten Americans believe political violence is justified now against the U.S. government. One in ten Americans. It backed up another poll from last year from Uni- University of Chicago that showed that 40 million Americans believe force would be justified to restore Trump to the White House. These are big numbers. I think Jeremy and I can both attest to, from a national security and public safety standpoint, we've never seen numbers like that. This is a massive increase in public attitudes towards political violence, and it's clear where it's coming from. It's coming from this populist culture of intimidation, spread by the Trump wing of the Republican Party. It's not just a political issue. It is now a public safety issue. That's why people should care.
1: This remarkable group of guests is staying with us. When we all come back, more reaction to what this new Republican threat looks like today. Uh, From President Joe Biden, we'll play his remarks for you. Plus, the state of Pennsylvania could change dramatically in November nine republicans are running for governor there all of them support limiting or banning abortion in pennsylvania up next we'll speak to the lone democrat trying to protect women's health there later in the program breaking news from the january 6 committee don jr sitting down testifying yesterday for a few hours we'll examine that development all those stories and more when deadline white house continues after a quick break don't go anywhere
8: What are the next things that are going to be attacked? Because this mega crowd is really the most extreme political ex- organization
7: that's existed in American history in recent American history.
1: The most extreme political organization in recent American history. That was President Biden's. Rebuke earlier today of this current incarnation that we're discussing of the GOP and the ex-president's ongoing grip on it. We're back with our panel. I mean, Cecile, I think it's, it's, it's double-edged, right? To gloss past this monumental decision and talk about what comes next, but they're connected. And, and I feel like that's where the conversation is heading so quickly. Um, I, I worry that that the panic is going to shift off the real world implications for women be, before it gets its due. And I wonder your thought on this characterization of the Republican Party and its current incarnation as the most extreme political organization in history.
5: Well, I certainly agree with that, that um, characterization. I, and I agree, Nicole, that this is. A seismic shift. This is, I mean, I don't think any of us have ever experienced the loss of a constitutional right. And many, many people in this country have never known a world where people couldn't make their own decisions about their pregnancy and that it somehow became the role of the government to tell you what to do when when you're pregnant. So I don't think we can gloss over it. I don't think though, it, and actually I should say, one of the problems we have seen, and this is certainly true in the state of Texas, is that when you empower the fringe of your party, you can't just stop. You can't just say, OK, job done. You have to keep feeding the beast. And that's why we, I think we see in Texas book banning and we see uh, attacks on transgender children and their families. Uh, the Republican Party in Texas has no agenda for the future. They are just obsessing on issues that can kind of feed their, feed their base. So I think that's, that's going to continue. They're going to go after birth control. They're going to go after emergency contraception and on and, and on and on. What I do think that people aren't anticipating is that assuming that this decision um, or this opinion, in fact, is issued, um, that will simply be the beginning of what is going to be a cascading series of states that are going to then implement abortion bans. And so it's not going to be a one-day story, as I think the Republican Party has hoped, or that somehow this leak would be the only story, because women are going to begin to go into panic all across the country. Um, Doctors are are going to now be arrested. People are going to be turned in. And so I, and, and, you know, because we know all the trigger bans, et cetera, this is something, this is a story that is going to continue. So even if we talk about all the other uh, potential issues before the Supreme Court. And I think there are. And usually women and abortion rights are sort of the tip of the spear. This is a story that is going to continue through November uh, and, and on because there are too many states that have too many laws on the books that, again, will begin to roll into effect and the stories will begin to come out. That's what I anticipate.
1: You know, you mentioned the protests that I have seen so far. Um, there are a lot of men um, standing alongside women. There are people young and old. Um, I think if you're uh, 50 or younger, which a majority of Americans I believe now are, you have never lived in America when abortion has been illegal. Um, and if you are looking at um, these questions about what is on people's minds when they not just when they get to the polls, but when they decide whether or not to participate in a midterm, this is completely altered by all likelihood the makeup of the midterm electorate.
2: This has absolutely catapulted the idea and the issue of abortions as a top issue in the midterms. Speaking to the director of the only uh, abortion clinic in Mississippi yesterday, she said that she hoped it was a wake-up call to people around the country to really think about who they're voting for, and not just on a federal level, but on a state level, where so many people will be now impacted by how those officials um, view abortion. I should also note that I've been talking to women who remember that time before 1973. And they say it was a scary time where women were getting sick, where women were going to emergency rooms, where women were frankly dying, where women were being forced to have children um, that they could not afford because they did not have have access to abortion. Um, There are so many women that I've talked to who say that they're now feeling like America is regressing and going back to a time where women are going to have to put their lives in danger. And we can't underscore enough that the people that are impacted most by this, based on my reporting here on the ground in Louisiana, but also in Mississippi, is poor women, women of color there women who are looking at another child and saying, I cannot either afford this even if they have other children, or women who are saying, I simply do not want this to be what is happening to my body. Um, I should also note that in talking to the, the women in the South here, they they point out that there are people here who do not have a social safety net for a lot of the things that they would need to have to um, carry a child that they did not want to go forward with and a child that they could not afford. They, they point out the resources not only to feed that child, to house that child, but to continue to support that child throughout their life, um, it is a burden that so many women here simply say that they just cannot um, handle. But of course, I have to point out that there is the flip side of this, right? When you look at the horizon, not only is there sort of what's next for women, but with the conservative movement I interviewed, and I I think I talked to you about this yesterday, this protester that continues to be on my mind, he's been protesting for decades outside outside of that abortion clinic in Mississippi. And I said, where are you going to go if this clinic is, cl- is closed? Where are you going to go if you're if the thing that you wanted happens? And he said he's going to turn his gaze to same sex marriage. He's going to be trying to push the Supreme Court, he and his group, trying to su- push the Supreme Court to abolish same sex marriage. So not only is this not over for women who are looking at abortion, but for the conservative movement overall, they are also going to be trying to go and check off other victories that they've long looked at um, when they look at the Supreme Court and, and the laws of this country.
1: And that's just, um, I mean, that is, that is what's happening in this country. It's um, also a product of the zealousness, Miles Taylor, with which Republicans have pursued the culture wars, even when there were periods when they were outside of the mainstream. And they've always fought these wars on emotion, um, some parts disinformation. But I, I wonder how you match all of that passion and anger. And as Yamiche is reporting, protesters who are now going to go to the next front with a a, a counter operation on the Democratic side to keep that issue front and center for the Democratic coalition of voters.
3: Yeah, I've got to say I'm just as shocked by it, Nicole. I mean, I actually thought I would be among the last generation of Republicans that were fighting amidst the culture wars. I think a few years ago, before Donald Trump, a lot of us would have said the culture wars were on the path to being over and that, by and large, young Republicans were becoming increasingly socially liberal and fiscally conservative. We all parroted that line at cocktail parties and elsewhere. We thought that's where it was going. We're completely wrong. Uh, Donald Trump, the influence of Trumpism on the party, the populist direction of our politics are reigniting the culture wars in a very, very real way. Uh, How do you combat it? I have a lot of concerns about that because I think that the risk of sounding redundant, it's gotten worse than just vitriolic. It's gotten very violent. And I use my own example, not so that people have sympathy for me, but they understand what's actually happening. If I had quit the Bush administration where I started my career, I worked in Dick Cheney's office. If I had quit and said Bush and Cheney were bad, which I didn't believe, but if I'd quit in protest, they would have quarreled with me. Instead, defecting from the Republican Party and fighting MAGA, they don't just want to quarrel with me. They want to kill me. Okay, because I'm going out there and saying the Republican Party, my party has been corrupted. They want to kill me. And that's not hyperbole. We receive death threats. But it's not just the me's out there that went into this clear eyed. It's poll workers. It's school board chairmen, It's just your neighbors that are suffering under the politics of physical intimidation by merely trying to stand up on these issues. That is what is so alarming. The physicality behind these opinions around cultural issues is what's very scary and has become a public safety threat. Frankly, the place I do agree with Sarah Longwell from our op-ed that we talked about earlier is even if the hope is a thin hope, voting and getting these people out is a first step But it's going to take a very, very long term grassroots generational effort to excise some of this from our politics. There is no quick fix.
1: You know, Jeremy, it makes you cringe listening to anybody who is receiving threats, to be honest and share what Miles is sharing and what I'm sure everyone here has experienced at one point. We've received threats um, online. What is the appropriate articulation of of that dark side of the Republican Party. If you're having an honest conversation with the voters, as President Biden seems to be trying to have.
6: Well, some people who claim to care about life actually don't. Right. And I think that's the encapsulation. And I just want to reflect one thing that's kind of personal, Nicole, which is that my mother was a midwife. She took care of women coming into the hospitals in the District of Columbia who were close to death who were badly infected because they had attempted back alley abortions in the early 1970s. And it was basically because of her and her colleagues they wrote to. They we were to save their lives. And so for us in our household, and I'm also the son of a rabbi, so reproductive health was not only a medical imperative, it was a moral, a religious imperative to protect life, to protect women's life, to protect the life of the women who were, who were under this uh, regime before Roe versus Wade. And I shudder to think that, that our three daughters and women across the country will have to go back, get that constitutional right stripped away from them, and that their lives will be devalued. I think that's ultimately the agenda, Nicole, of what's going on here.
1: I think I think to answer my question, President Biden is going to have to have you come out and start telling these stories. I mean, that is to Cecile's point exactly that we're moving backward. I mean, that's that's the reality of of, of what's happening, and it's it's just remarkable. Yamiche Alcindor and Cecile Richards. I'll tell you what I said in the commercial break to everybody listening to us. These are the only four people in America who could make the turn from uh, overturning Roe v.ersus Wade to JD Vance on Tucker Carlson and back so seamlessly. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation today, Miles. will see. See you again in the next hour. Jeremy sticks around for the rest of this hour. Up next for us, there's no better state that better, there's a state that better represents the stakes this November than Pennsylvania with voting rights and now abortion access on the line. If Democrats lose the governor's race there, there will be no way to block any upcoming draconian legislation in the works in both those areas. We'll speak to the Democratic candidate for governor, our friend Josh Shapiro next.
0: This is a national catastrophe, and so we're going to move with alacrity, with speed on the heartbeat bill. I believe the sanctity of life, and I
9: would
10: be a governor that would protect life. No exceptions? I would not have any exceptions. I actually agree with Mr. White that we need to be working to protect life and moving our laws in the right direction.
1: It's just a small sample of what Pennsylvania voters heard last week from the Republican crop of candidates for governor. And who and what? Lone Democrat Josh Shapiro is running against. Pennsylvania is one of many states, but perhaps one of the most unexpected states where abortion rights will appear up and down the ballot this year. And the governor's role is vital, as Democratic uh, as Tom Wolf has proved three times already in blocking attempts by the Republican-controlled legislature to outlaw abortions in Pennsylvania. The political dynamics and the fate of their continued attempts could all change dramatically this year. In the wrong hands. Joining us now, Pennsylvania's attorney general and candidate for governor, Josh Shapiro. Hi there. Um, We're happy to have you. It is a very heavy conversation. But tell us how you see the will of voters in Pennsylvania and your views on this.
11: Well, it's clear that the battle to protect abortion rights is going to now happen in the states. It won't be settled in Washington, D.C., sadly. And here in Pennsylvania, the stakes could not be higher, and the choices could not be more stark and clear. Look, we know that the Republican-led legislature will put a bill on the next governor's desk to ban abortion. And we know that the leading candidates for governor on the Republican side, each and every one of them, Nicole, would sign it into law. I will veto that bill, and I will protect abortion rights for millions of women here in Pennsylvania.
1: You know, what what President Obama articulated, I think, gets at how extreme these bans in the states really are to not support exceptions in cases of rape and incest and life of the mother is to put into question what kind of health care a pregnant woman who, heaven forbid, gets in a car accident, ultimately gets in any hospital. Or as President Obama cited, the specific example of a couple dealing with, infertility that has an unviable pregnancy there mm-hmm. would be severely limited. So I, I wonder if it's your thought that these specific examples of the extreme nature of the statewide bans is the best way to talk about it. Or if you have any other advice for national Democrats as this issue becomes front and center.
11: I would say I travel all across Pennsylvania in counties that would be considered blue and counties that would be considered red, rural, urban, suburban communities, and I speak about this issue everywhere, even before, of course, this document leaked out of the Supreme Court. And I will tell you that the Republicans running against me on this outrageous position of banning abortion in Pennsylvania, they are wildly out of touch with the electorate here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Absolutely absolutely out of touch. And that's why I said before, the stakes couldn't be higher and the contrast could not be clearer. I think Democrats need to lean in on these issues. And I think it is clear that the battle is going to be in the states. And I don't shy away from having this conversation in any community anywhere in Pennsylvania.
1: You know, and, and I guess a follow-up for you is everyone we've spoken to in the last two two days um, feels that, that Republicans won't stop with overturning access to reproductive health care, that gay marriage could be online and others. And I and I right. wonder if, if your thoughts about those issues are, are the same, that this is a conversation we have to have in very blunt terms.
11: Yeah, Nicole, I think this is a, a really broad issue. Obviously, we need to focus on abortion rights and protecting it here in Pennsylvania, but I think this is really about fundamental freedoms, right? The freedom to raise your family as you want. And I I think this is a slippery slope if this draft opinion ultimately becomes reality. As it's drafted, it puts so many other rights that we have come to appreciate and, and rely on at risk. The right to marry who you want, the right to travel freely across the country, the right to homeschool your child if you want. So many of these rights are hung on the 14th Amendment as abortion rights are. And so the reality is this is a very dangerous step that the Supreme Court seems likely to take, a step that is going to thrust um, the issue of abortion—I think abortion is health care—those health care decisions back to the states, but also it puts so many other rights at risk, and it makes electing governors in these states where legislatures like the one we have here in Pennsylvania are going to try and continue to erode those rights, it makes those governors so critically important.
1: California's governor um, has said that he'll propose an amendment to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution, so there's no doubt. I know the Republicans in, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania are trying to enshrine the opposite in your state constitution. Do, do you share um, Governor Newsom's views, or, or what are your views on the constitutional amendment?
11: Look, ideally, I'd like to see the federal government, right now, the Congress of the United States, codify Roe, get that bill to uh, President Biden's desk and have him sign it into law. I worry that if we continue to battle this out state by state, that if at some point in time, the Democrats are not in charge in Washington, Republicans could pass extreme bans, roll back other rights and make it nearly impossible for states to do the kinds of things like Governor Newsom is proposing in California. So the reality is um, we need a federal standard that protects Roe and protects these other rights. In the absence of that, though, we will be playing defense here in Pennsylvania to protect the rights. Listen, I will veto any bill that reaches my desk that does away with a woman's right to choose, that bans abortion here in Pennsylvania. And we're going to have to Play that game, if you will, that game of defense and protection mm-hmm. here in Pennsylvania, if the court continues to do what it appears poised to do, and that is erode the rights that Americans have come to expect and, and, and rely upon.
1: Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, thank you so much for spending some time with us today on all this. We're grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. A quick break for us. We'll be right back. Jeremy Bash, we've talked for almost an hour about this leaked opinion. Tell me your read on what it will actually do.
6: Well, if you look at it, Nicole, what it says in very stark terms is that unless a right is specifically enumerated in the Constitution, it's not a right. And so as strange as this sounds, this strict construction of the Constitution by Justice Alito in this draft opinion would eviscerate commonly held views about rights and liberties, the right to marry who you want, the right to associate with who you want, the right to obviously engage in any personal conduct like contraception, which is a right that the Supreme Court noted in one of its seminal opinions. The right... Do
1: you think they're all threatened by this I opinion, do. if it stands?
6: I really do, because the way this opinion is written, it leaves no ambiguity. It essentially says that unless a right is
1: specifically enumerated in the Constitution, it's no longer a right it's a terrifying prospect um jeremy bash it's so nice to have you on set please come back often thanks uh when we come back lordy there are more tapes brand new audio from gop leader kevin mccarthy on ex-president trump's conduct around january 6th we'll play them for you next don't go anywhere Hi again, everyone. It's five o'clock in New York. We begin the hour with a flood of breaking news in the January 6th Select Committee investigation. Just in the last hour, NBC News has confirmed Donald Trump Jr. has faced questions from the committee. He testified for several hours yesterday, voluntarily via Zoom. Donald Trump Jr., the latest of several members of the Trump family to testify, including Jared and Ivanka. Jr.'s fiance Kimberly Guilfoyle has also testified before the 1-6 Select Committee. All of them had a noted behind-the-scenes presence on the morning of the January 6th insurrection, as Trump and his allies riled up a crowd of Trump supporters, many of whom would go on to breach the United States Capitol building. Politico, which was first to report the news of Jr.'s testimony, elaborates in reporting today on what he may know about his father's push to subvert the results of the 2020 election. Quote, the committee has highlighted a text message Trump Jr. sent to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows as a mob overtook the Capitol on January 6, 2021. In that message, he urged his father to make a more forceful statement to condemn the violence. Quote, he's got to condemn this bleep ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Trump Jr. texted Meadows. It comes on the heels of previous reporting from CNN that Donald Trump Jr. texted White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows ideas for overturning the 2020 election before it was called. Politico adds this reporting, quote, Trump Jr. is also the latest select panel witness believed to have been in the Oval Office the morning of January 6th with Trump, his top aides and family members. Shortly after they arrived, per a private White House schedule obtained by the committee, Trump called Pence to make a final effort to pressure him to overturn the election. And just as we're learning about this critical update on the January 6th select committee investigation, we're also... Getting our hands on more tapes. There is more new audio from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. It's from two days after the January 6th attack. It was obtained by New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns for their new book, This Will Not Pass, with strong words on Donald Trump's conduct and even a discussion of the 25th Amendment. We're going to play a long clip of these new audio tapes for you. Listen to this.
9: But yeah. what the president did is atrocious and totally wrong. Um, from the standpoint, we're 12 days away. I mean, the one point I make with Biden, if you have an impeachment and you're stuck sitting in the Senate and he needs cabinet members, you've got Secretary of Defense, you've got a lot of things that you've got to have moving. And if you think from a perspective, you put everything else away, right, this country is very, very divided. I mean, I've got people I've never thought would be in this type of condition That very sophisticated. They think this thing is going to be different. They're angry. They want to continue to fight. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Before. The best way, I think, for everybody as Americans, before, is to focus on the future, not the past, trying to bring us together. And I do think the impeachment divides the nation further and continues to fight even greater. Um, that's why I want to reach out to Biden. I wanted the president to meet with Biden, but that's not going to happen. I want to see about us meeting with Biden, sitting down, make a smooth transition, to show that and continue to keep those statements going. Um, so hopefully, I know he's going to talk to Pelosi, but he's going to, hopefully he calls me today um, and see if we can start that process. I think that would be beneficial to his presidency, too. And I actually think he personally would be stronger above it to actually say something to that extent. I want to move the country forward. Why have this? I mean, if they leave the impeachment, that means they call us back next week. Um, Their members have it a little easier with proxy, but that's what everybody else just, they'll continue it. They'll start, they'll protest everybody. I'm just worried about, um, you mean, i, I yeah. think they're chance, Kevin of getting them not to move on impeachment. I'm trying. I'm trying to do it not from a basis of Republican, just basis of hate. It's not healthy for the nation. You know that. And that's why, uh, that's why that's a conversation I want to have with Biden himself. I mean, to want I used to do that with Mr. Biden and his GP up at his house there. Um, I think he would. Do that. I think he would get all that. I don't know what the stats would be, but we'll see. And let you, what were you hearing about the call? I, I had a couple dims call me right now. I'm on this call, so I don't, I didn't get any feedback." Yeah, just that they're discussing it. It seems like there's um, definitely, obviously, anger on their side, but but also um, division uh, strategically on what to do. You know i think the options that have been cited by the democrats so far are the 25th amendment which um is not exactly an That's elegant solution here that takes too long too to it could go back to the house right yeah and, and uh, it's, correct if, if the president were to submit a letter overruling the cabinet and the vice president the two-thirds vote in the house Senate to overrule the president so it's kind of an artful uh obviously impeachment has been discussed and then i, I mean i think they want him to resign, which, I don't see happening either, Um, but members are talking about it, and um, we'll keep you posted on what we're hearing, but uh, certainly I I would say it's it's, uh, it's possible there are votes in the House next week.
1: Kevin McCarthy describing Donald J. Trump as atrocious and wrong is where we begin the hour with some of our favorite reporters and friends. Daniel Goldman is here, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, as well as former majority counsel during Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. Miles Taylor's back, former chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security. And joining us by phone, one of the reporters who broke the Donald Trump junior news, Betsy Woodruff-Swan, Politico national correspondent, also an MSNBC contributor, joins us. Dan Goldman, I want to start with with you on Kevin McCarthy's voice on this tape, talking about the 25th Amendment, not as um, the least viable tool for getting rid of Donald Trump because Donald Trump didn't deserve it or was fit, not unfit, but because, quote, it takes too long. Um, you have an entire cabal of Republicans who, who, who knew and, and these conversations about what to do with him were predicated on this belief that he had to go and that he was unfit for office. Um, It makes Kevin McCarthy reviving Trump all the more galling.
0: Yeah, I mean, both in terms of the 25th Amendment and in terms of impeachment, he was basically making sort of a logistical and scheduling calculation, not an actual normative view that he should not be removed or he should not be impeached. Uh, he was saying it's a very polarized nation, not that I don't think he should be impeached. Um, and, you know, they're, they're assessing the, the pros and cons and the realistic uh, nature of, of the 25th Amendment and, and impeachment itself uh, with so few days. Um, it, it's, it's striking as all this audio is coming out, not just that Kevin McCarthy is just a bald-faced liar but the degree to which he swallowed what are clearly his true feelings to bow down, you know, to the altar at at Mar-a-Lago very soon after. And, you know, you you get the question. and, And I think John Boehner would be a very good person to speak on this because he was held hostage in many respects by the House Freedom Caucus. And I'd be very curious what his conversations were that led him From saying that the president should be removed by the 25th Amendment, but for the uh, schedule or the sort of structural and procedural issues to going down to Mar-a-Lago a a couple weeks later to, you know, kiss the ring of, of Donald Trump. That's what's interesting to me. And, you know, that, of course, would be something that the January 6th committee could get into if Kevin McCarthy would agree to speak with them, which he has indicated that he will not.
1: So let's put that aside for a second, Dan Goldman. What else does DOJ need other than Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, saying what Donald Trump did was atrocious and wrong, saying that he and Scalise both thought criminal conduct had gone on among their own caucus? This knowledge that Donald Trump had to go either by impeachment or the 25th Amendment, but no contemplation that he had to stay. What is DOJ doing if they are not asking at least Kevin McCarthy what he knows, what he saw and what he talked to Donald Trump about?
0: Well, uh, there's a lot of of steps that I would take before I would approach Kevin McCarthy.
1: Were any of them happening?
0: We don't know. We don't know. And, And I hesitate to say no, because, you know, there are a number of things that they could be doing right now that we would not know about. We would, of course, know if they decide to meet with, you know, Brad Raffensperger or anyone in Mark Meadows' uh, circuit or anyone in Mike Pence's circuit. You know, the, those are the natural places where you would expect a for the DOJ to go as they investigate and drill down on this widespread, massive, sprawling conspiracy uh, at the helmed by Donald Trump. I, I think what what is this is more political to me than criminal than you know in prosecutorial investigation uh, of relevance. Um, you know, it's it's Kevin McCarthy making his you know non legal assessment that something is wrong and, and atrocious.
1: I, let me just uh, weigh prefer- in as a as a politico. I, I don't. I mean the political perils of. of- Kevin McCarthy's saying Trump should go. He has no—I mean, I I don't think that's right. On the politics, there was nothing for Kevin McCarthy to gain by saying Trump must go, evidenced by the fact that 14 days later, he says Trump must stay. I listened to Kevin McCarthy's assessment as being rooted in three things. One, knowledge of Trump's criminality and misconduct. Two, fear for the security of the country— And three, I mean, there was no third option. It was he has to go either by the 25th Amendment impeachment or resignation, which he says on multiple recordings he won't do.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that to me is really the takeaway from this, is that Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the House Republican Party, made the assessment that Donald Trump needs to go. And this is not just the day after. This is not the night of January 6th or the day after. This is two days after. And some of these recordings, I think, are even further. uh, One was January 10th. I mean, these are several days after where, uh, you know, cooler heads could prevail and they could get their ducks in a row and figure out what their political uh, process is going to be and what their their talking points are. But he's out there championing that Donald Trump has to go. I would just caution Nicole from a legal perspective. You know, Kevin McCarthy's assessment of what is a crime and not is pretty irrelevant to the Department of Justice. So the fact that he thought or Steve Scalise thought that it may be illegal uh, is is good fodder for us to discuss. But I don't think it's anything that the Department of Justice would care very much about. Well, how
1: about how about this? What do you think? I mean, should DOJ want to know what Trump and McCarthy talked about in Mar-a-Lago? Because maybe what Trump told him or showed him were the White House visitor logs that had half of his caucus plotting a coup.
0: I think that conversation would be very relevant. And I think that any conversations that McCarthy had in the lead up to January 6th uh, with Meadows, with Don Jr., with uh, anyone in the Trump orbit pushing for uh, this this big, wild rally on January 6th. All of that would be relevant. And it just goes to how massive this investigation really is, Nicole.
1: I mean, Miles Taylor, I I guess what's amazing to me, and I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a prosecutor and I don't even try to play one on TV, but I've now covered several failed investigations to hold Donald Trump accountable for what prosecutors call crimes. Robert Mueller described 10 of them in volume two of the Mueller report. All sorts of people have examined him. No one has held him accountable. You now have Kevin McCarthy, who clearly describes his conduct as atrocious and wrong. And then makes this complete pivot to not just Donald Trump's going to go by one of the three means, resignation, impeachment or 25th Amendment to a complete reversal. Some, something changes his mind more than the politics, because Donald Trump isn't any more popular on the day that McCarthy goes to Mar-a-Lago than he than he is on Election Day. It's static. And it's so static that you and I spent the last hour talking about how his handpicked picked Politicians in Republican primaries are ascendant in the GOP. His, his grip is a steady line at the highest rate of any Republican out there in the land. So w- why doesn't anyone want to know what Kevin McCarthy learned at Mar-a-Lago when he decided that Trump must die?
3: Uh, I have to add, Nicole, I am neither a lawyer or a prosecutor, but the operative questions here are what did they know? And when did they know it? Because a crime happened here. This was a crime scene. This is a crime scene against democracy. Kevin McCarthy is a witness to one of the biggest political crimes perpetrated against this country. Genuinely, I don't mean that hyperbolically. He is a witness. And those questions need to be asked. And that's why this tape is a bombshell. There is no question. And I've been saying for years, if you had strapped a body cam to people like me when I was working in the House and then went into the Trump administration and left, the things you would have seen on that body cam footage would have made your skin crawl, but not for the reasons you would think. You would think it would make your skin crawl because what you would witness is the horrifying, reflexive attitude towards criminality that Donald Trump had, the impulse towards doing illegal, unethical, and immoral things. But what's even more chilling, in a sense to me, is that all the people around him The cabinet secretaries, the people like Kevin McCarthy and others, as we've been saying for years, talked about that in private, talked about how terrifying it was. They considered things like the 25th Amendment to remove the president. These things are real. And we're now seeing the tape. That's not what's skin crawling. What is skin crawling to me is what happened next, is that these conversations would happen in private. And these people did not have the courage to come out and talk about it publicly. I cannot believe that a Kevin McCarthy would get elected by the American people to represent them, even consider that the president was doing something so egregious that he had to be removed by the 25th Amendment, but then sing a completely different tune publicly. There's no other way to describe it but duplicitous, and it's not what we expect of our public servants. That is what's so chilling that we see time and time again from the beginning of the Trump administration to well after he's gone from office is the fear of him keeps these people silent. And it is corroding our democracy in real time.
1: I guess what's amazing, though, Miles, is that what's up is down and what's down is up, because on the right, and, and you know better than anybody, um, what's rewarded in, I won't call them public servants, but in Trump's servants is the opposite of all that, is not siding with democracy over Trump, not telling the truth about the results of an election Donald Trump clearly lost. And what's curious to me, and you, I mean, you, you've taken stands, you've done more than, than just about anybody, but nobody saw a different version of Donald Trump. So a whole lot of people kept the horrors of Trump's presidency secret for a lot longer than you did. You, you came out, you told your story, you wrote an op-ed, you wrote in the book, but It has now these tapes are landing at a moment. I mean, the other ones resulted in a standing ovation for Kevin McCarthy at the Republican House caucus meeting. There's there's no view of public service that resembles anything you just said on our air inside the Republican Party. And I guess my question is now what?
3: Uh, It's it's it is the question of our time. You just asked the question of our time that will determine whether America reaches its 300th birthday or whether it does not. One half of the country, unfortunately, or close to half of it, sees the Trump family like a political dynasty. The other half appropriately sees them for what they are, which is a crime family. They look much more like a mob crime family. And what the January 6th Select Committee is appropriately doing, a bipartisan committee, is asking what these people knew, when they knew it, trying to get to the core of it. And these are people, Trump doesn't treat his family members just as people he sees when he gets home from his day of work. He enlists them in his efforts. Uh, and, And what's disturbing to me, again, Nicole, back to the point you just made, is that everyone knows it. Everyone up to and including his family would acknowledge in private how irascible and unstable this man is, but won't talk about it in public. And that refusal to do so when it comes to an individual person around someone like a Donald Trump, is maybe a decision of cowardice. But when everyone does it, it it creates exactly the scenario that you just painted. The public ends up creating a whole new narrative. They end up believing the things that are said. They believe the lies that are told, and it warps society. And any student of history that looks back, whether it's to Nazi Germany or back to Greco-Roman times, will see that this can have very, very deleterious effects to the survival of a polity is when you have mass adoption of conspiracy theories, the mainstreaming of lies, it has political implications. We we are no doubt at the very beginning of this. There's no way to get this out of our political system in a week or a month or a year or two years. This is now cemented in the minds of millions of people. And it is, again, back to your question, going to be the political challenge of our time. It will determine whether the republic survives in healthy, recognizable fashion in this century.
1: Wow. Um, I, I want to tell our viewers what we're working on. These stories developed in the last hour while we were on the air. We're trying to get Betsy Witcher swan to a camera. We want to bring you her brand new reporting about what Donald Trump Jr. has testified to before the January 6th select committee during his interview yesterday. Give us a second to work on that. We'll be right back.
7: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.
1: We're back on this breaking news with Dan Goldman, Miles Taylor, and Betsy Woodrow-Swan, who joins us by phone. Betsy, take us through your reporting about Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony before the 1-6 committee. That's right.
12: This story broke just within the last hour. What we know is that yesterday, as most of the country was focused on the news about the Supreme Court and on the first round of primaries going on, particularly in Ohio— Don Jr. had a virtual interview that lasted several hours with investigators on the select committee. We know that this interview, notably and just like his sister Ivanka and his brother-in-law Jared Kushner, was not conducted under subpoena. Don Jr. appeared voluntarily for this interview. We also know that the select committee is deeply interested in a number of topics that Don Jr. has direct knowledge of. They're very interested in the text that he sent to the White House Chief of Staff saying that Trump needed to speak out much more forcefully as the violence was unfolding. They're also deeply interested in the January 6th rally that Don Jr. spoke at before the attack in that rally, Jr. specifically said that there would be political consequences for Republicans who did not support the effort to overturn the election results. He specifically said that he would show up in the backyards of of uh, Republicans who didn't support the president's effort, which has been characterized as him threatening to support primary challengers, essentially saying that Republicans took their careers into their own hands unless they were on board with the president's effort, Very much part of this rhetorical effort to level as much pressure as possible against Republican members of Congress. These are all things that are core to this elect committee's investigation. The fact that John Jr. cooperated voluntarily just shows the extent to which, in the final weeks of the investigative process, this committee has had a series of major breakthroughs and of major bursts of momentum that most of us, I think, couldn't have imagined last year when the committee first started its work.
1: I mean, it also draws a bright line between... Ivanka and Jared Trump, and now Donald Trump Jr., and Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows, the people willing to go to jail to protect Donald Trump aren't his kids. Does this have any ramifications on those um, obstructive acts by Steve Bannon or Mark Meadows in your view, Betsy?
12: You know, you have to wonder if Bannon and Meadows have a little bit of buyer's remorse about the fact that they were so quick to stiff arm the select committee. At this point, cooperating with the select committee has the blessing of Trump's, you know, most of Trump's family. Uh, And if there were going to be punishment or ramifications to people, if, if that's what Meadows and Bannon thought that they might face, now in the 11th hour of the probe, it's clear that actually, People are going to be able to cooperate with this without necessarily facing any significant criticism from Trump or his inner circle. They kind of got the worst of both worlds, uh Bannon and Meadows, in that you know they're now in in, met, in uh, Bannon's case facing a uh, DOj criminal charges, in Meadows' case, potentially facing criminal charges, when they could have handled this much more easily by just cooperating. And you have to think that any other senior Trump administration officials or allies who had been on the fence about playing ball with the committee, now there's no question that cooperation by far is the path of least resistance.
1: We're airing footage of um, Donald Trump Jr. and and, um, this is a random thought, but he's he's the 20 pound lighter twin of J.D. Vance. Um, I want to ask you about the campaign politically being waged about the one six committee by the likes of J.D. Vance. I mean, it feels like it's narrative destroying for Kimberly Guilfoyle, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner to go before the committee and ostensibly tell the truth. Betsy, I I wonder how much of this this group of witnesses that includes the The family is about the Pence leg of the investigation. And if you go back to Congressman Jamie Raskin's public comments last week, that some of the most chilling words were, I will not get in the car referring to Mike Pence after the evacuation, which was captured on film of the Pence family being rushed out of the Capitol by Secret Service down to the basement where he refuses to get into his car and leave the building. How much is that act of Pence's sort of actions on that morning, his interactions with Trump and his conduct in the Capitol under scrutiny by the 1-6 committee?
12: We know that when Ivanka Trump testified to the 1-6 committee, she spoke about conversations that she had with the president as the attack was unfolding and, of course, as Pence himself was in grave danger. The committee has suggested that she didn't necessarily tell them everything that that they wanted to know, but that she did cooperate and that she did answer questions. Specifically, in terms of Pence, of course, his experience... facing, you know, very much the threat and violence of this Trump inspired mob is something that's right at the core of what the Select Committee is investigating. One of the huge outstanding questions is what is whether they try to secure his voluntary cooperation. And of course the voluntary cooperation of so many people in the president's very immediate circle, including in his family, stands in stark contrast to the rhetoric from Republican politicians who some of those family members are campaigning with, and the way that they're talking about the January 6th Select Committee. The fact that there is this level of voluntary cooperation, not just from the president's family members, not just from the president's inner circle, but also, perhaps even more importantly, from the vice president's very close inner circle. It all just points to the fact that the ultimate report that comes out from the Select Committee is going to is going to be based on an unprecedented level of access to firsthand witnesses who saw exactly what was going on. Of course, the Select Committee would love more. Of course, they would love Meadows. Of course, they would love Bannon. But they're getting more than I think uh, anyone imagined that they would.
1: The most significant breakthrough and and momentum. That's such an important analysis of what these interviews taken together represent. Miles Taylor, I wonder if, in your view, Mike Pence is someone who makes anything other than a calculation that has at its center becoming president in the Republican Party primary process. Is Mike Pence someone who can look at what the president's own children decided To do and say, well, they can talk, I can? Or is Mike Pence too singularly focused on his own political prospects? What does Mike Pence do in your view? Uh,
3: What would Mike Pence do is a question that usually ends in something you said earlier, Nicole, which is the path of least resistance. I think you can count on one thing and one thing only when it comes to Pence. And I say this having seen him from the floor of the House of Representatives all the way to his time as vice president. And the thing you can always count on Pence to do is the least courageous thing. So, look, if he thinks it's going to save his skin, he'll voluntarily cooperate. If he thinks it's going to be better red meat on the stump out on a political campaign, he'll obstruct the investigation and refuse to meet with them. But I do think what we are seeing is very interesting is that the people who've declared executive privilege so righteously are now kind of left twisting in the wind, as many people who hang on for too long in Donald Trump land ultimately are, uh, because the folks closest to him have said, forget it, we'll just voluntarily cooperate. I think that's very, very telling. It signals where other folks like Pence who are going to speak to investigators are likely to go. But there's another thing here that I think is sort of overlooked. There are some unsung heroes in the January 6th Investigation so far, and and I've nodded towards them before. And it's the folks who've been doing the digital forensics here. Um, there was largely overlooked news that one of those investigators, who was a former Republican member of Congress, Denver Riggleman, recently left to go take a job to help Ukraine. Uh, I believe at a nonprofit. Uh, but but Riggleman was leading this technical operation that frankly has led us to a lot of these news stories. We mm-hmm. can't count on Don Trump Jr. or Jared Kushner to go in and reveal the receipts and actually point the way towards the answers in this investigation. We need to actually go get the receipts. We need the data. We need the footage. We need things like the recordings we heard from Kevin McCarthy. And by all accounts, that digital team has been turning over some really extraordinary stuff. These The text messages have led to the interviews with these family members, have led to interesting threads in the investigation. And, you know, I'd be interested in Daniel's take on this, but it, it sort of seems to all go back to— sort of police work 101 is go find the actual evidence and and go confront people with it. And And I do think so far from what we've seen, the select committee is doing real work here. They're doing real investigative work. They're turning up real evidence. And hopefully that's taken by the U.S. Department of Justice and taken the step further that this committee can't take it into criminal prosecutions if that is indeed what is determined to be warranted.
1: Dan, I'll let you respond to that, and I I just want to add a second part to the question. Liz Cheney, everything Liz Cheney does, um, whether you love it or hate it, is deliberate, and she deliberately read from the criminal code uh, about obstructing an official proceeding as the crime that was under investigation by her committee. There's been some different reaction from the select committee, but no disputing that they have surpass an evidentiary sort of standard of making a criminal referral to DOJ. That said, how does the testimony of the family members who were in the Oval Office figure into that?
0: Well, I want to make two points about the testimony. The first is I I do think you need to give some credit to the House for making the referral for, for criminal contempt to DOJ and for DOJ to charging Steve Bannon. The point of doing that was creating a deterrent effect uh, to force other witnesses to come in and cooperate. So it's not in a in a vacuum that we're dealing with all of these family members coming in. They know that if they just completely blow off the committee, they will be referred to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution. That's a real thing. And the deterrent effect is real. Second, and, and I saw this a lot when I was down in Congress, got to be a little bit careful with voluntary testimony because the committee cannot compel the witness to answer any questions they're not under subpoena and so they cannot be compelled to answer questions and that likely is the sort of middle ground that they reached with the family members so that they could uh, protect themselves from being compelled to to answer any questions that they didn't want to answer without having to invoke the Fifth Amendment all that being said, a good uh, questioner, and there are many good questioners on staff, uh, former prosecutors, former U.S. attorneys, can make some real headway with witnesses like this. And so I, I do think it's it's a significant development, and I think that it helps to fill out the the entire story. But the Department of Justice has more than enough evidence than they have for months to go forward with an investigation. They don't need a ref- and this shouldn't put them over the edge.
1: Dan Goldman, Miles Taylor, Betsy Woodrow-Swan, thank you all so much for scrambling and jumping on the air with us to cover this breaking news. We're really grateful. When we come back, we'll turn to the war in Ukraine and the growing concerns that Vladimir Putin could be planning on expanding the war in the coming days. That story after a quick break. Don't go anywhere.
13: You can't imagine how scary it is when you sit in the shelter in a wet and damp basement, which is bouncing, shaking.
3: What did your father tell you when you left? What did he say
1: to you?
13: He said we'd meet each other soon.
1: So just some of the stories coming from evacuees at the Mariupol steel plant, speaking out on the horrors they've endured in the case of that young man was left behind like his Father, Ukrainian soldier. They were part of the 100 civilians evacuated from the plant to safety, a remarkable development as past evacuation efforts there have failed over and over. The Washington Post is reporting on the civilians now safe, telling their stories like this, quote, women and the elderly said that they had lived for more than a month without sunlight as fear pervaded and food dwindled. Russian bombardment struck the sprawling complex so hard that dust swirled down from the bunker ceiling. When several dozen civilians finally stepped above ground Friday to meet a U.N.-backed evacuation convoy, that first daylight in weeks felt like it was burning people's eyes as the scene they witnessed sent some into shock. On the one hand, seeing the sky for the first time, but on the other, seeing the destroyed city, said the U.N. humanitarian coordinator for Ukraine. But today, the mayor of Mariupol confirming to NBC News that he had lost contact with the remaining Ukrainian defenders of that steel plant, as Russia continues to storm the last Ukrainian stronghold there. More than 30 children were among those still trapped, he says. This as we are now just days away from May 9th. It's a day feared by all, but celebrated in Russia for marking the surrender of Nazi Germany and the end of World War II in Europe. In a new piece in The Atlantic, Tom Nichols warns that Vladimir Putin may use that day to announce an escalation in the war. Tom Nichols writing this quote, no matter what Putin says on May 9th, the Russians will continue to inflict misery on the people of Ukraine. The question next week is whether the Russian president intends to extend this war to the rest of the planet. Joining our coverage, the aforementioned Tom Nichols, contributing writer to The Atlantic. Also with us, Amy McKinnon, national security reporter for Foreign Policy magazine. And joining us live from Kiev, Ukraine, is our friend, NBC News correspondent Cal Perry. Cal, I have to start with this evacuation and a thread you have pulled for us every single solitary day that you've reported the horrors uh, inflicted on the Ukrainian people at the hands of Russians.
10: And I think we're probably going to be reporting more in the next 24 hours. So there's been off and on communications with the people who are left in this Avastal plant. The mayor saying earlier today they lost communications. We understand now, and he's been giving uh, TV addresses throughout the day, updating the situation. We understand now communication is back, um, but it's reported that Russian forces have now entered that immediate area around that plant where people are. And we know there's a a high number, um, hundreds perhaps, of Ukrainian fighters who are wounded in that site because we've been hearing that from Ukrainian commanders who are able to kind of miraculously, we should say, get messages and videos out um, on a daily basis. The the mission uh, from the Russians seems to be to capture or kill um, the people in this plant, and it seems like we're sort of in the final hours uh, of what has been sort of a last holdout. The the Tom Nichols piece is really well-timed, obviously, because I think people here are talking a lot about May the 9th. We've talked to a number of people um, whose family members are outside of the country or in the western part of the country, who are looking at May 9th as a marker to judge whether or not they should come back. And I should say that we're seeing video from Mariupol of Russian forces in places where there's not ground combat cleaning up the city um, and and trying to tidy up the city for what the rumor is could be a parade on May 9th in Mariupol as a sign of victory that Putin can then point to. Um, The reality is that Mariupol has been wiped off the map in in, in many ways. You can see it in, in the video. This is video from Russia. This is video from Belgrade in southern Russia of attacks that have taken place across the Russian border. This is sort of, I think, the other factor. And, and of course, I know you're going to talk to Tom, and he gets into this a little bit in the piece. It's going to be hard to declare victory if parts of Russia are still under attack. And this is that new phase that we've talked about, especially with these offensive drone weapons that are being given here to Ukrainian forces. It seems likely um, that they are expanding this war by attacking sites, again, infrastructure sites in Russia that that will undoubtedly complicate whatever message Vladimir Putin tries to give to the Russian people uh, on May the 9th, Nicole.
1: Um, Cal, stay with us. And Tom, I want to bring you in on on your piece and on what we've been saying about your piece with with just one more question for you. Um, Do the attacks inside Russia make May 9th more fraught for Ukraine and the West? Uh,
8: I I don't think so, um, because the Russian media obviously isn't going to spend a lot of time on them. Um, I think the bigger issue is that the Russian military um, feels humiliated and that the attacks inside Russia, you know, that's that doesn't help that sense of humiliation. But they've been losing um, battles for two months to the Ukrainians. And uh, they're going to want some kind of acknowledgement and something to show um, for the immense and almost staggeringly incompetent losses they've been taking. So, I, I mean, I hope that the warnings that we've been hearing from places like the British Defense Ministry and um, some of the, you know, concern among the Russia watchers, I, I hope that's all wrong. Um, but, you know, that's why we're all kind of holding our breath to see what happens on, on May 9th. I, I don't think Putin is just going to walk away here. I think, you know, no matter what happens, it's, it's, this isn't going to end and we're not near the end of this.
1: So another—I want to read a little bit more from your piece, um, and and then I I have another question for you, Tom. You write this. If Putin doesn't announce an escalation, what else might he say? One option is to declare a limited victory and then go back to grinding away at the Ukrainians, as he has done in the Ukrainian East since 2014. He may simply announce in the spirit of a day devoted to the end of Hitlerism that he has indeed denazified Ukraine, an easy call given that precious few Nazis were loose in Ukraine in the first place. He might say that victory is in hand but needs to be consolidated with the occupation of what's left of Mariupol. Um, this point that, that, that he could claim victory on denazification because there, there weren't any um, is, is, is funny, but, but, but salient. But, but the second thing is to the humiliated Russian military, who, who do they blame? And this, this sort of, the, the piece is hauntingly alluding to the potential for, for Putin to expand the war. What does that mean?
4: Well,
8: first, ironically, all of the things that that you just recounted from the piece, those are those are good outcomes relative to other things that could right. could do. They're not good in themselves, but those are the kind of less awful uh, outcomes. Um the, the Russian military and the Russian president have pretty much decided to blame the Russian intelligence services for this debacle. But the way it's being framed at home for the public is that the Russians are not that Russia is not losing to Ukraine. It's losing to NATO. And that is a narrative that I think um, Putin is is going to push. The Russian media and the Russian government are pushing it because that's less humiliating than losing to the Ukrainians. Um, that is the face-saving argument that says we are not really losing to, you know, Vladimir Zelensky and the Ukrainian Armed Forces. We are losing to 30 nations led by the United States. The danger there is if um, the, the next logical the statement is, therefore, we really have to, you know, redouble our efforts to fight NATO um, in this region. Uh, again, I hope I'm wrong about that, but that's already the public narrative. We're not really losing uh, to the Ukrainians. We're losing to NATO. NATO is the real enemy. And, um, you know, we may have to declare war against all the Nazis in the world, not, no matter where they are, uh, not just the ones that we've eliminated from, uh, from Ukraine.
1: And Amy, you write about the other losers on the Russian side. Belarus, explain.
13: Well, Belarus, which sits between, between Russia and the European Union, was launched to, was used to launch much of the attack on, on Kiev, in particular, in the very early phases of the war. There were 30,000 Russian troops moved into Belarus earlier this year, ostensibly for exercises, but of course, many were then sent across the border into the attack on Kiev. And now, you know, Ukraine's fate is, is going to be decided uh, by this war. Much of Russia's fate will be decided, but Belarus's fate is also inherently tied to that. A country, the country's president, Alexander Lukashenko, is deeply dependent on the Kremlin, on the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, who propped him up following protests uh, two years ago against, wide, against elections which were widely regarded to have been falsified. And so that leaves the fate of Belarus's president and, by extension, its country very tied to how the outcome of this goes, particularly for Russia. And many Belarusians, uh, opinion polls show, are opposed to their territory being used in the in these launches and to launch these attacks on Ukraine as well.
1: We're going to ask um, Tom and Amy to stick around. Cal Perry, I want to ask you in your reporting tomorrow about this date, about May 9th. I'm just I'm I'm really curious about what you said at the top of your report, that it's affecting people's calculations who I know you've reported previously. People are coming back into Kiev. Um, I'm really curious to know how that is affecting people on the ground, the choices they're making and the timing of, of when they contemplate that. So put put a pin in that uh, or if you if you could address that now.
10: Well, for all reasons, Tom said, uh, right, I mean, a stagnant war in the East, I think, is President Zelensky's nightmare, because I think he's worried that NATO nations might lose attention, that the weapons might start flowing. Um, But there's a real fear, I think, people who are sheltered in Lviv, who are sheltered in Poland, who are sheltered in Romania. Do we see rocket fire rain down on Ukrainian cities May the 9th because Vladimir Putin wants to make a statement? And then does that set everything back here again and and set back reconstruction, set back the ability uh, for people to come back to their homes? In the last 48 hours, Nicole, we've had batches of... Of airstrikes. We've had over a dozen cruise missiles hit targets as far west as Lviv, as far west um, as the border area with Romania. Tonight, there were rockets fired out of the sky here um, in Kiev. So there seems to be a doubling down of the airstrikes targeting the infrastructure, targeting the rail networks, which are carrying these weapons. So there's a fear, I think, between now and May 9th and then on May the 9th, we could see an increase in attacks. That's what people are worried about.
1: It's just got this, this feeling. Um, I mean, the whole thing has felt this way, but, but, but there is sort of this, this palpable Anxiety as we near that date. Cal Perry, thank you for joining us. Please yeah. stay safe. As I said, Tom and Amy stick around. A quick break for us. We'll be right back.
7: Caesar's Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesar's rewards.
1: We're back with Tom Nichols and Amy McKinnon. Tom, President Biden made remarks that when we thought we had more time, I was going to play all of them. But he basically talked about this battle between autocracies and democracies as the theme of his presidency. And I know it applies in his mind to our struggles here at home. What are your thoughts as we see folks like J.D. Vance win primaries and we see that struggle really burst into public view in this country? What are your thoughts or your concerns about our ability to go the distance and stand by Ukraine.
8: You know, 30 years ago, democracy was on the march. Um, the authoritarians and dictators were in retreat. Um, now they are uh, pressing forward. They're uh, taking their shot, um, trying to change the direction of recent history. And the saddest thing is that instead of being, um, you know, uh, um, the, the place that is immune to that, that, that the shining city on the hill, the the fortress of democracy against those trends, that the United States is being eaten away from within by authoritarians who don't believe in the rule of law, don't believe in equality, don't believe in um the sanctity of the vote. Um, and it's a dark time. I mean, I, I hate to be such a downer at the end of the day, but it's I think it's a really dark time for democracy, uh, including in Europe, where once again, democracy is under attack by force of arms from dictatorships.
1: Now, it's, it's a brutal truth, but a, a really important one. And, and I wonder, Amy, how cognizant our allies and our adversaries are of that reality here.
13: Well, going back to your earlier question about, you know, how will what's going on here in America affect support for Ukraine? At the moment, I think, you know, support for Ukraine is, is remaining steady, and that is a bipartisan issue with strong support on both sides of the aisle, despite some occasional occasional remarks from, from some fringes. But there's strong support amongst both parties um, for continuing to both support Ukraine with military aid, but also with its humanitarian efforts. We saw that $33 billion supplemental package from the Biden administration last week, which will support not only Ukraine, but also NATO allies along the eastern flank. So, you know, whilst there's a lot to talk about going on at home here, I think in terms of, you know, the material support, what's actually going on on the ground, U.S. support for Ukraine remains robust as ever. It's absolutely
1: a perfect point to end on. There there is not, um, support for Ukraine does not fall along what have become standard partisan divides in this country. Um, Thank you for ending us on a positive note. Amy McKinnon, Tom Nichols, thank you both so much. I'm sorry our time got short and we will make it up to both of you. And thanks to all of you for letting us into your homes on this Wednesday. We are grateful.
7: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.